Support. Support. Support for this podcast is brought to you by the The Kellogg Innovation Entrepreneurship Initiative. Think bravely. Think differently. Think collaboratively. Those life rafts, you know, if it's a nine to five, if you will, a steady paycheck or something that, that removes the urgency, that's nice in the short term, but it can kind of prolong just that necessary step of just pulling the ripcord and jumping. Hello, you're listening to My Startup Journey, a show that highlights the business and individual stories of innovators, educators, and Kellogg students. In this episode, we speak with John Stoops of The Revival. The Revival is an improv theater in Chicago's Hyde Park neighborhood. It hosts improv shows, live performance education classes, and corporate workshops. Before The Revival was finally built, it was an idea brewing in John Stoops' mind. John, the owner and founder of The Revival, spent years building a career in the ad agency world, pursuing his MBA at Kellogg, and performing improv shows with comedians like Seth Meyers. But it wasn't until his early 40s that he decided to go for it and capitalize on his lifelong vision of creating his very own improv theater. This is John's story. To Tulsa, Oklahoma for a couple of years, to Chicago for a few years, to Milwaukee for about five years, five or six, and, uh, and then back to Chicago. And I went to a number of grade schools. I, I sort of uh, likened myself to a military brat minus the actual military connection. Uh, we had the lifestyle, but uh, my father was just uh, transferring jobs and going from one opportunity to the next. So, uh, you know, that had us bouncing around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I consider myself a Chicago, and I've been in the city now for 23 years. And uh, plus, you know, as I mentioned, some time growing up. So I really consider myself a Chicago. But I will say that moving around, as I mentioned, um, it did, I think, instill a certain comfort in new situations, um, and it also instilled probably an absence of complacency. You know, there, we were always sort of on the go, if you will. I was always being thrust into new classrooms, you know, forced to make new friends every two, three years or thereabouts. Um, so I, I bring that up only in the context of our larger discussion. I think that set the tone for, frankly, being comfortable in new and novel situations and, and trying to figure situations out time and time again, um, you know, rather than just setting down in a situation and letting that run for years on end. Um, but yeah, I think you know, fairly ambitious. I, 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 you know, sort of stereotypical entrepreneur. I was, you know, I had a, had a leaf raking business and a show, snow shoveling business, and, and uh, sold everything under the sun, door to door, chocolates, garbage bags, uh, you name it. And then started, you know, working for real, you know, at about fourteen or fifteen, landscaping, a ski shop, bagging mm-hmm. groceries, and kind of never stopped. What, what was so interesting about creating all these different businesses or finding ways to be employed? I, you know, 
the very straight up motivation in those days was money period I mean when I think about it I would I was a, I was always a real saver I also really looked forward to having a stack of cash at the end of the year so that I could buy my family Christmas presents Wow <laughs> I That's very generous of you. I always looked forward to that and, and yeah. felt very empowered to be able to march into a shopping mall, you know, and get things for my sisters and my parents and stuff. Um, but it was money, period. That's it. You know, I ended up, in retrospect, getting a lot from it, just experiences with people and managing situations and whatnot. But at the time, it was just all about watching my bank balance. And where did you go to college? I went to undergrad at the University of Wisconsin in and what was your first job out of college? Uh, account executive at the Leo Burnett ad agency in Chicago. Yeah, I spent 17 years in the, in the big agency system here in Chicago and um, working primarily with, you know, your classic Fortune 500 companies. So over time, I worked with uh, Unilever and Procter & Gamble and Kraft Foods. And uh, my first account was Dean Witter. Um, which effectively no longer exists. It was uh, absorbed into Morgan Stanley. Um, but yeah, that, that, that classic sort of big agency, TV commercial, 30-second ad world was my world for 17 years, though it, it was also that experience which introduced me to theater, and specifically improvisation. Um, it was my first job out of college, October 1995. Uh, October 2nd, I believe, was day one, and uh, perhaps that day, maybe the next, I sat in a human resources orientation meeting where they're explaining the, you know, the, 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 the health care benefits and the, you know, this and that, uh, and, uh, you know, 401k, all that stuff, and, and oh, by the way, if anyone wants to take classes at the Second City, we'll pay for it. And they explained that uh, somewhere years before, some executive had taken an improv class at the Second City and, and found it to be very helpful in terms of uh, uh, generating ideas and thinking on your feet. And so that executive put into place this program wherein any employee could take classes at the Second City for free. And uh, so I, I was new to the city. Um, I've been in Madison for four years and high school in Milwaukee prior to that. New to the city, uh, had my little studio apartment in Lincoln Park, didn't know a soul, uh, was making $24,000 a year, and um, ha you know, I had a nine to five and nothing else. You know, there, so I thought, well, that, this sounds great because it um, sounds fun, you know, probably meet some people, and my work's going to pay for it. So, so that was it. You know, as I mentioned, uh, 1995, 1996, I jumped into the Chicago theater community first via classes and then performing, and directing, producing around town, just little silly little comedy shows um, on little matchbook stages and, and, and sort of backroom coffee shops in Bucktown and this kind of thing. And, and just doing these little comedy shows, sketch comedy, improv comedy. And uh, was doing it with some buddies whom I'd met in, in at Second City and some friends from the advertising world. And what was great was we all had these nine to five jobs, 
we put up shows on a Friday or Saturday night in 20 seat theaters, literally, and surprise, surprise, we'd sell them out because, you know, we all work at 2,000 person companies. So you just spread the word a little bit. Hey, we're doing a show. You're doing what? Hey, we're doing a comedy show on Saturday. I'll check that out. You know, so, so we, we, we could sell out runs. Um, so we did that for a good long while. And um, that grew and grew to the point where I was, uh, you know, pretty actively involved in the Chicago theater community. Never left my job, but was, had graduated to more quote-unquote traditional theater, was performing in bigger, more established theaters. And then in, in 1998, um, I auditioned for a group called Boom Chicago. And Boom Chicago is in Amsterdam. And it is a group of Chicago expats, similar background to my own, but they took the idea over to Amsterdam. And when they got there, they realized, wow, this town's got a lot of people, heavy tourist traffic, and, and no comedy theaters like the ones we take for granted in Chicago. We should do one here. And so they set up a theater in Amsterdam called Boone Chicago, kind of harkening back to the Chicago tradition of improvisation. And um, they, by the way, are celebrating their 25th anniversary this summer. They're still going strong. But in 1998, I auditioned for them and got the gig. So I always say I worked in advertising for 17 years, and that's true, but there was one little one-year hiatus where I left, moved to Amsterdam, and performed full-time um, in and around Europe. And that was an interesting experience for a lot of reasons, because um, that was never the plan. That was never by design. I was never, and really still am not someone who considers myself like a drama club kid or you know, theater geek. I, I studied marketing in undergrad. I have an MBA. I didn't then. But um, I thought of myself in, in more of a business context. And here I am in Europe paying my bills, performing night in and night out. And I just thought, well, this is wild. You know, I'm 25 years old. I'm living in Europe. I mean, that, I'm kind of living the dream. And, and I sort of fell into this. Um, it's fun to know my, my roommate at the time in Europe was Seth Myers. Was he? Yeah, and, uh, and some guys who went on to, um, to, to nice, good careers. Ike Barinholtz was out there, and, um, and uh, Jordan Peele replaced me in Boom Chicago. He was my replacement. I came back. He went out. Um, so it's become a little bit of a, you know, a talent farm, if you will. Um, I'm sort of bringing up the rear on that, but um, oh but what I bring, that's impressive. Well, it was fun, but the reason I bring all of that up was that was a real head spinner, and and I specifically remember myself. In fact, I can absolutely pinpoint it to a Chase Lounge in Ibiza, Spain, sitting poolside the morning after a show, where I thought, my God, these three guys from Chicago set up a theater. Like if they can do it. I can certainly do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to one of the founders. I said, you know, I, I think I'd like to do something like this one day. And, and we just sat down and talked about what that meant, what that would entail, what they learned along the way at that point. And that sort of planted the seed for what became this. It's funny, I guess I can say it now openly and on podcasts. Um, I, uh, 
it's funny very early on uh, really the first week at Leo Burnett I made a couple really good friends uh, many of whom I'm still in touch with but one in particular became a, a really good friend and and, and uh, very quickly within the first week or two we, we confided to each other that um, this advertising was fun this was cool five years maybe and uh, and and then we'll use it as sort of a, a, a jumping off point to something else. Um, it's it's interesting. But very early on, I just wasn't entirely comfortable with the notion that I would have a corporate career for the rest of my life. And I found that you can really sustain a, a pretty good uh, theater career, if you will, or or at least hobby, you know, on evenings and weekends. So I was able to really nicely just effectively balance both, have the best of both worlds. I had my nine to five, and then evenings and weekends, you'd catch me rehearsing, performing, directing, producing. And it, it continued on like that for many, many years. So somewhere along the line, about, um, I guess it was about 10 or 12 years, about 10 years into uh, advertising, I thought, well, I really need to do something if I'm going to make a change. So I thought, well, well let's, let's think about an MBA. And um, so I went through the whole application process, applied full-time to about five programs around the world, and uh, I was applying in, uh, let me think about this, the spring of 2001, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and then later that year, you know, the, the, the acceptance letters came in and some instances rejection, deferrals, yada yada, had to make a choice, and 9-11 happened. And uh, that was, needless to say, a really scary time for everyone, obviously. And for, for quite a few months, it's interesting to think back, but for quite a few months after that, you know, everything was sort of on the table. You know, what does this mean for our country? You know, what, what's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to everything? And the notion of leaving at that point a career I'd been at for 10 or 11 years, taking on six figures of debt, and then being released out into the world with nothing but a degree and, 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 a, and a, a big debt load sounded really scary to me. So I very quickly... Uh, pivoted, if you will, and, and spoke with Kellogg and, uh, and did the part-time evening track and didn't, you know, have that situation on the back end where I was being, you know, thrust into the great nothing um, with no job and, 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 and student loan bills coming due. Did you have an entrepreneurial track in mind? Or? So I did. I had an entrepreneurial track in mind and, and, and very specifically um, put on paper the business plan uh, for what eventually, through some twists and turns, uh, became the revival today. After the break, John shares how he turned his business idea into an improv theater. Here. 
Hey, my name is Ryan Yan, and I'm a weekend student from Atlanta, Georgia. Today I'm playing In My Hood, where Kellogg students recommend breakfast, lunch, and dinner places from our hometowns. So my first recommendation for breakfast is a place called Ria's Bluebird. It's an amazing brunch place where your waitresses and waiters got tattoos, but it brings together people from all parts of the community, from people wearing suits to people wearing barely anything at all, and families can join in and enjoy some of the nicest pancakes in town. For lunch, my favorite place is a local spot called Fresh For You. Serve Mediterranean food. I always get their Euro combo. It's like six bucks for a nice Euro plus uh, some hummus and uh, a drink. And it's always made fresh for you as the name suggests. My favorite dinner spot has got to be Poor Calvin's. Great place to take a date. They serve Asian fusion. The chef Calvin Van is a pretty famous guy in Atlanta in terms of the chef circles. They've got a thousand five-star reviews on Yelp and I think they deserve every single one of them. Food is great. Favorites there probably the fried chicken with lobster mac and uh, crispy beef. And that's it. My name is Ryan Yan, and I just played in my hood, Atlanta, Georgia. Earlier, John explained why he pursued his MBA. Now, John shares how he combined his business acumen with his passion for improv. I wrote a business plan for what became the revival at Kellogg. In fact, the business plan won Kellogg's 2005 business plan competition. And just frankly being able to say that and having that credential really helps in bank meetings, meeting with you know, prospective landlords. Um, it, it, it does open doors. It, it just simply does. And for good reason. Um, I think any individual who has been admitted into the program and completed the program, it suggests, oh, okay, you, you, you know a thing or two. And, uh, you know, I'll give you a few minutes to hear what you have to say. Um, you know, that, that constant sort of door opener. That has proven to be the case. Um, I would also say the experience of, of putting a business plan on paper in a vacuum, if you will, just setting aside, you know, whatever it was, a year to just think about this thing, think about it again, stress test, think about it again, talk with other people. I would bring my business plan into other classes and sort of shoehorn them into the, uh, into the projects of that class. You know, what you can do, sure, there's the business plan writing classes, and, and, and I did those, but then you could take like an entrepreneurial finance class where they'd always say, like, well, let's come up with a company and, and let's, you know, come up with financials for it. And I say, well, rather than being hypothetical, why don't we just use this business plan? Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. You know, and then you go into an entrepreneurial marketing class or, or any marketing class. You know, your assignment is to come up with a marketing plan. I'm going to assign you brands, Kraft Cheese and, you know, Cool Whip. Uh, actually, can we just use this? Can we just use this business plan? You know, so, yeah. I, so I would just shoehorn it into everything. So, so by the time I graduated, you know, I really thought through 99% of the business, which was, which was really, really helpful. I graduated in 05 and with a business plan in hand, I had won the competition. Some judges from the competition had committed to funding the launch of the business. And it's funny just sitting here thinking about how much of my life's trajectory has been impacted by international events, but we were ready to launch in 08 and then 08 happened. And again, not unlike 9-11, it was another really scary time.
Wall Street firms going belly up and, and the, the market tanking and two wars and, and uh, banks tightening up right? banks tightening up and, and uh, even the folks who I lined up as investors you know started changing their tune a little bit I'm not so sure this is the time for me to be throwing money into a comedy club to say nothing of me thinking wow you know discretionary spending is probably going to tighten up real fast here is this the time? And so, again, I always had that life raft of the career, which I'd never left. I was just working, working, working. So that removed some of the urgency, and I just put the plan on the back burner. And it's funny to see what happens when entrepreneurs or anyone looking to strike out on their own in any way. It's interesting for me to see what happens when folks have a, a life raft, if you will or don't. Um, those life rafts, if, you know, if it's a nine to five, if you will, a steady paycheck or something that, that removes the urgency, that's nice in the short term, but it can kind of prolong just that necessary step of just pulling the ripcord and jumping. Um, and uh, that was certainly the case with me. It just prolonged and prolonged and prolonged to the point where I hit 40 and was like, dear God, if, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do this. this. This can't be hanging out there for an eternity. And so, um, so I did it. You know, finally just enough was enough. Was it just a series of events that happened that said, I need to do this? Or was it... Was it one specific instance, or what really? Really two things. So my career in advertising was one that, right out of the gates, it, it didn't exactly fill me with great meaning and purpose and satisfaction. It was a means to an end. It was a paycheck. It was fun. It was loosely creative. Um, I met some fun people. Certainly nothing wrong with it, but, but it didn't fulfill me in any meaningful way. Right out of the gates. Well... That trajectory over 17 years went from, hey, this is fun, this is cool, it's a paycheck, I'm meeting people, we're going out on weekends, it's a good time. And you fast forward to your 30s, wow, you know, I'm still doing this. <laughs> this is becoming increasingly less satisfying. Um, to the point where towards the end, you know, years 14, 15, 16, 17, it was, John, you got one life to live, and, and this is just simply not how you should be living it. It was just wildly unsatisfying by the end. And I think for a couple of reasons. You know, I'd spent a lot of time to that point. And you start to question, is this the best use of my time? Is this the best use of my life? Um, but also as you rise in the ranks, um, this applies to almost any career, I think. You start doing less and less of the things that got you into the industry in the first place and more and more just you know, typical, quote-unquote, managerial tasks. Um, but also as you rise in the ranks, the expectations of you become greater and greater, as they should. You're being compensated more and more. And quite honestly and quite bluntly for me, it became more and more difficult to fake it. Oh, man, that's, that's tough. It's real tough, yeah. I was just reflecting on this with my wife the other day. It got to the point where in, in those final years, I, I would you know, very often find myself in the office on Monday in, in a team meeting, and someone would say something like, 
I was just flipping through the newspaper uh, on Saturday, and uh, and uh, you know Baskin Robbins just launched their new campaign, and I noticed that this yada yada yada, and I would always find myself thinking, you think about this stuff on the weekends? <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> my God, since yeah. I walked, I can barely think about it while I'm here, right? <laughs> much less in my personal time. Um, but but it became clear as as time went on that that I was the anomaly. I was the weirdo in that room, um, and that 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 that's tough. That gets really tough, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I just I just had to get out. And it's funny now to contrast that with where I am now, you know, having launched a business and doing this thing, where I think about this business twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. I have for years on end, effortlessly. I love to think about it. <laughs> you aren't the anomaly in this world. It's great. Yeah. I love it. You know, if, if someone were to call me on a you know, Saturday at two in the morning, I've got an idea for your business. It was great, let's hear it. Uh, you know, I'm just I am all in. I love it. That was so not the case for me in corporate America. It was just like, oh God. It was just like they were extracting a pound of flesh each day. I walked through those halls, you know, they couldn't pay me enough in the end to just keep going. How do you come up with the name Revival? Do you, do you remember when that happened? It's like, oh, 55th and University, the Revival, or was it? Uh, well, yeah, I remember exactly uh, where and when it happened. I was actually visiting family in Baltimore, and uh, with my wife and son, who at the time was I know, probably two or three. And um, it's funny, you know, just going on vacation with a two-year-old, the things you find yourself doing. But we went to the library and just pulled a bunch of books down and we were sort of looking at books and then my son became uh, you know got got uh, found a book and was plowing through that book and so I was just sitting in a Baltimore library knowing that I needed to come up with a name for this business and so I thought well I'm here I've got a little time to kill I'll just sort of pick up some books that might be interesting sort of inspiration, some source material, just look for words and ideas and concepts that might spark an idea. And I was um, I was thinking about what this business was intended to be, where it is, the history of where it is, and I was plowing through a jazz history book and they talked about revival jazz, a jazz revival, and uh, as sort of a genre and a, and a type of jazz. And, um, you know, in addition to the, the history of where we are and what we have revived, if you will, this was also like ground zero for the jazz music scene of the 1950s. Um, so I like that it had the word revival had some sort of jazz connotations and jazz illusions. I like the fact that you know we are reviving an art form, if you will, returning it. Um, you know, in, in theater circles, when you talk about bringing back an old classic, they refer to it as a revival. You know, this is the revival of Hello Dolly, the revival of you know, you name it. So the word just sort of. Um, I think about the South Side going through a bit of a renaissance or revival of its own. So it just seemed to tick a lot of boxes and, and work on a lot of different ways. And I like that. It doesn't mean one thing. A lot of people assume it just means, oh, we're reviving the Compass Players. It can mean that. But but I, I like the idea that it ticks a lot of boxes and mm-hmm. works on a lot of levels. How did you end up here 
in the south side of Chicago. Because I don't, when I think of improv, I think of the north side. Yeah. So I considered all kinds of locations for this business, from Dublin, Ireland, to London, to New York, LA, and Chicago, and, and, and all points in between. I looked at everything. And I will say it was a combination of both personal and strategic reasons that, that led me here. But the reason, first and foremost, that we ended up on the south side in Hyde Park is that improvisational theater as an art form was invented in Hyde Park. It was invented in 1955 by a group called the Compass Players operating out of a small makeshift theater on the northeast corner of 55th Street and University Avenue. And guess where we're sitting right now? The northeast corner of 55th Street and University Avenue. So the idea was to um, return this art form to its birthplace. It was founded down here by a group of uh, University of Chicago students and friends. They operated for a few short years. That group included names like Mike Nichols and Elaine May, who went on to huge careers in Broadway, Hollywood, and beyond. Uh, but one of their members, Paul Sills, stuck around Chicago and decided to uh, keep going. So he got a new space on North and Wells in 1959, opened the second city. And from that point, the art form really flourished on the north side, all over the north side and, and beyond, you know, all over the world really, but never came back to the south side, never returned to the birthplace. So the thinking was, well, this is a wide open landscape down here. Contrast that with the north side where there's a theater on seemingly every corner. That's just not the case down here. So that, that struck me as opportunity. I like the, the historical play, returning this back to its actual birthplace, just if for no other reason, a sort of a nice marketing angle. Um, the University of Chicago has proven to be a, a wildly wonderful neighbor to have, you know, from 15,000 students to faculty and staff who've been wildly supportive of this business in every way imaginable. What's harder, uh, making money or making somebody laugh? both very hard. Um, the irony is you, you do both. <laughs> yeah. It's making someone laugh, which by the way is only a portion of what we do. We've got a big training and education component That's right. as well. But the, um, but the performance aspect of what we do, the weekend shows, is, um, is such an interesting business and, and, and being in it to this level and, and at this depth and to this degree, you start looking at things in whole different ways. I was explaining to a staff person the other day how, where, and why we place chairs will directly influence our opportunity to get laughs from this audience. And she was like, what? The temperature of the room will impact our ability to generate laughter from this audience. The level of light, how people are greeted and seated, this all connects in. Um, it's really interesting. Laughter is you know, real, gen real honest laughter is an involuntary reaction. You know, it's not like smiling or shaking hands. You know, you can be on your deathbed and smile and shake someone's head, but laughing, you know, this, this just, just erupts from us. You know, whether we, whether we intend to or not. And, and so getting someone to that point involves them feeling safe, comfortable, cared for, um, 
they don't want to be alone and so that gets into like the proximity of people like we would you know if you can see 20 people in five square feet or 50 square feet put them in the five it will help because uh, laughter sort of spreads like an electrical current it needs connectivity um one final question business and improv training this seem like they're two different disciplines yeah that you combine the two can you talk about why they mesh so well sure. and why improv and, and business makes sense sure um very often people connect the word improv to comedy we, we think of improv comedy improv comedy some people even say comedy improv i'm not sure why but um improv comedy when we're talking about training and education i like to decouple the words improv and comedy i like to take comedy and just set it off to the side because people come to our training and education initiative very often with a, a number of misconceptions you'll hear things like oh boy i'm nervous about this i'm i'm not someone who tells jokes i'm not the class clown you know oh, i'm not funny i'm not funny well we're we don't teach you to be funny um we're not teaching jokes none of our classes are about setups and punchlines that's the furthest thing from what we're doing and so i like to dispel those myths what we're doing is focusing on the improv part of the equation and specifically the underlying skill sets of improv the underlying skill sets of improv are listening listening to each other really actively listening to our scene partners uh, to acknowledging what it is they say um, and to really hear someone you have to be in the moment you have to be present you can't be running a script in your head three steps ahead you have to be in the moment hearing what someone is offering to you then you acknowledge it and you build upon it they do the same next thing you know you're building a scene that's what improvisational theater is so it's about listening collaborating this principle of yes and positive co-creation those are the real underlying skill sets great improvisers are great at those things and the comedy is a byproduct the worst improvisers in the world are people who think the comedy is the thing and they go in shoehorning jokes and trying to be funny those are the people that you do not laugh at the people we really enjoy and respect understand that it's about listening collaborating co-creating so when you focus on those skills you see that they're wildly transferable to any number of spaces how relevant is it to be a good collaborator in a business context or a medical context or an academic context any corporate context um, think about Kellogg's team-based approach it's all about positive collaboration co-creation hearing each other making each other's ideas better that's the whole idea of a team that's also the whole idea of improvisation so they're wildly aligned and, and that's what we teach there are exercises that can that can bring these skills to the surface and help people really see and experience them in different ways uh, how can people find out more about the revival well uh, easiest way is just check out our website which is the dash revival.com and uh and you can learn about our shows classes corporate workshops summer camps you name it 
After interviewing John, it became very clear that the revival's name had special significance to his story. When deciding to go for it, John had to make a conscious choice to let go of his de-energizing lifestyle and accept challenges that were more life-affirming. In his world, laughing, training people, and committing to the South Side all contributed to his personal revival. Once again, a special thanks to John Stoops and Ryan Yan. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And until next time, this is Naruki Harai from My Startup Journey.